Well, the, uh, the news continues to get better, but we are not there yet. I still need, you guys are tired of this as I am, second and third grade, two teachers, nine o'clock hour, and fourth and fifth grade, one teacher, nine o'clock hour. Um, that, that comes from you guys. I need about three people to step up and come at nine o'clock serve our kids for the glory of God. Those are the last remaining opportunities. You can sign up in the lobby. And uh, I'd like to pray that God would convict the socks off of you right now. No, that God would encourage you to do this thing. And I want to pray too for our time in the Word. So let's do pray again. Lord, it is our privilege to serve. And I do believe that you have uh, these three people here today who will honor you well and serve well in... um, loving these kids, speaking to them of the glories of God in ways they can understand. So Lord, prompt those today to step up and serve in this way that I know honors you. And God, we're all in need of prompting from you today, just concerning the burdens we bear and the suffering that we endure, things that are hard for us, to know that you are with us and at work in these things for our good. Lord, whisper that to us today in ways that we can grasp through your word, we pray. In Christ's great name, amen. There's a fellow, his name is Gary Richmond. He's written a book called It's a Jungle Out There. And I believe it's a collection of stories uh, from the zoo, quite literally. One of them, he tells, is about an Angola giraffe that was giving birth He's standing there watching this event happen with the zookeeper. His name is Jack Bedell, and he's watching it unfold. And the the mother giraffe is standing up, and the calf's front hooves and head are visible as she begins to deliver birth. And he says to Jack, "Um, when is she going to lie down? She won't, he answered. He said, but her hindquarters are nearly 10 feet off the ground. Who's going to catch the calf? He said, well, you can try catching it if you want, but its mother has enough strength in her hind legs to kick your head off. So soon the calf hurled forth, landing on its back. His mother waited for about a minute, then kicked her baby, sending it sprawling head over hooves. Why did she do that? She wants it to get up. Jack responded, "Um, whenever the baby ceased struggling to rise, the mother prodded it again with another hearty kick. Finally, the calf stood, wobbly but upright. The mother kicked it off its feet. She wants it to remember how to get up, Jack said. He said, in the wild, if it didn't quickly follow the herd, predators would pick it off. And I, I tell you that story just as a frame of reference for some of the suffering that you're going through today. Some of you feel like you're being kicked by a mother of one kind or another. And could it be that God is so good that he intends to bring redemptive work in your suffering? Is that really the kind of amazing God that we serve? 
And the answer from David's life is yes. That's exactly what God does with the suffering of his people. He redeems it for good. To protect them from predators, so to speak. And if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15, we're going to try to ramble through both those chapters today in large part and get a sense for the hope that God brings to us when we're in hard places. And I've heard some of your stories. I know some of you are in desperate straits. And God has you here today to hear this story recounted. But the players in this story are starting to get really complicated. So I'm going to review where we are a little bit and help you underscore the key names. King David, of course, is the great anointed king of Israel, but he had fallen into grievous sin with Bathsheba. He took another man's wife and lay with her, then had her husband murdered so that she could become his wife with no one knowing. The fallout from that has really progressed through David's family in grievous fashion because as he committed sexual immorality, so his son Amnon raped his half-sister. Just as he murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, then his, his other son, Absalom, murdered his brother, Amnon. And then Absalom, who's the key player alongside David in our story today, really, fled to another family member's house, the king of Geshur, who is Absalom's grandfather's house. So the situation when we pick up this story is that Absalom has murdered his brother in an act of vengeance and has sought refuge with his grandfather away from David. And in chapter 14, verse 1, it says that Joab, son of Zariah, Joab was David's military commander. He knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tico to had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab procures a wise woman from another town. Really, she's just like an actress in this story. And he gives her a script to read to the king with the hope of bringing about reconciliation between his son Absalom and King David. It's a story similar to the one Nathan told in previous chapters because it's intended to provoke David to change his situation. So she tells the story. You can read it for yourself. I'm just going to summarize it for you. She tells a story of two sons. She's a widow with two sons. One of her sons kills the other son and he flees seeking refuge from those who would avenge her her one son's death upon him. Her fear is that in vengeance and justice, they will take her only remaining son from her. Now, David reassures her that he will intervene as king. Make sure this doesn't happen. Down in verse 11, she said, Then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my remaining son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, David said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Verse 12, Then the woman says, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. Speak, David replied. The woman said, 
why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. So she says, look, um, if you're willing to do this for my estranged son who's been banished because of the murder, why won't you do this for your own son who's been banished? If God makes a way for people who are banished to come back, why haven't you, King David, made a way to do this? And this affects David deeply. We've already seen he's a, he's a father who's longing for his son. But he also has a sense that unlike Nathan's story to him, this one is not really from God. This one smells like Joab, his commander. And down in verse 18, the king says to the woman, don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. <clears throat> she says, let my lord the king speak. And David asks, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or the left from anything my lord the king says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. In other words, to bring about reconciliation between David and his son. My lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. The king said to Joab, who evidently is listening in on this conversation, Very well, I'll do it. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows he's found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. And Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. So Absalom now, through this maneuvering by Joab, is returned to Jerusalem, but not fully restored to his father. He's under something that's kind of like, some, some writers think, kind of a house arrest. He's at least not allowed to see the face of his father, King David. We can only assume that that's because, on Absalom's part, there's been no repentance at this point in time to bring about that fuller restoration. Verse 25, In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom, and the daughter's name was Tamar. And she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time. Joab refused to come again. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, 
Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Job, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. And the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So there's restoration here at last. We get a fuller sense for who Absalom is here. He's extraordinarily handsome, and he seems to know it. I mean, the guy weighs his hair when he cuts it. I kind of think of him as the Fabio of his day. It's kind of have that picture in your mind. A large bird on a roller coaster coming right in. Um, He's also manipulative and demanding. He doesn't get his way. He burns Joab's field to get his attention. He says something interesting. He says, I'd rather die than not be able to see my father's face, the king's face. Sounds like the love of a son for a father, but there might be, in fact, there is a different and darker motive, and that comes out in the very next verse, the start of the next chapter. In the course of time, after being restored to his father, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. These were the accessories of a king. And what we're about to find out is that Absalom is positioning himself to overthrow his father. This is a situation where this is just inappropriate. This is like the vice president riding around too much in the presidential limo. Something's wrong with this picture. And Absalom is campaigning here. Rather, he is scheming and plotting to overthrow the throne. Absalom would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading through the city gate. And when anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servants from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. That is, the king doesn't care. And Absalom would add, oh, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that he gets justice. And then whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, he was a royal prince, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He's stealing the hearts of his father's subjects by deceit. He's stealing the hearts of the subject of the man who just forgave him for the murder of his father's son. And now he's scheming against him. He says, his father won't see you. But we know from the previous story, David was seeing people. He just saw the widow who made up the story about her two sons. And Absalom says, oh, if only I was king, then you'd get justice. I'm thinking, who wants Absalom's justice? Remember Amnon, whom he murdered as an expression of his justice? 
So he's got this huge conspiracy building at this point in time. Verse 7 says, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I'll worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. And Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent to Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So for four years, he works this scheme at the city gate. For four years. And we find out not only is he a lying, murdering ingrate, he's a patient, lying, murdering ingrate. He runs this scheme for four years before he sounds the alarm. You know, for two years he plotted to kill his brother. For two years he waited to gain audience with the king. And now for four years he, he waits to overthrow the king. He is a patient conspirator. And his conspiracy, again, is built on deception. He invites 200 um, soldiers along, and, or men along, and they're just innocent. The next thing to know, they've been lumped in with Absalom. And so he adds to that group of people who are involved in the conspiracy. He also adds Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's counselor. And Ahithophel would be both a trophy and a strategic advantage. It says um, in chapter 16, in those days the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Um, So this is a strategic coup. He's now claiming to be king. He's got the king's counselor. And you wonder, why would Ahithophel go over to Absalom? Well, if you remember, Ahithophel was the father of Eliam. Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. So Ahithophel is the grandfather of the woman that he, David committed adultery with and killed her husband on. So he has obvious incentive to change sides. And this change of David's close counselor would be devastating to him, his trusted advisor. And some feel that that's what caused David to write these words. In Psalm 55, he says, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked through the throng at the house of God. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His speech is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. And David is grieved by Ahithophel's desertion. Verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his officials who were there with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he'll move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. 
So now this great warrior king has no fight left in him. He's just fleeing for his life. But God is doing something in David and for David in the midst of his great suffering. God is humbling his king. And he is surrounding his king with his people so that the suffering David's experiencing will accomplish its intended good effect that David would become humble and God's people are the great sustaining agents that God uses here to render David's suffering. God will not allow David to suffer alone. Eugene Peterson says, Hardship brings out the best in David and suffering can, if we let it, make us better instead of worse. And a key part of that is the community that we experience. That's what it was for David. And the first of those supporters and encourages were his own servants and household. The king's officials could also be rendered the king's servants answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. And the king set out with his entire household following him. But he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. You know, the loyal support of his household had to mean a ton to David. He's just been betrayed by his own son. What's the rest of his household going to do? Who are they going to side with? They side with David. And from the perspective of a father, the support of your family is huge when you're in hard times. I mean, it is absolutely huge. Why do you think dads keep for way too long those little handmade cards that say, best dad in the world? Because it matters to them. It matters that their kids are on their side and believe in them. And there is nothing in a man's life more significant than an encouraging, supportive wife. The book of Proverbs states it backwards. It says this. It says, It's better to live on the corner of the roof than to share the house with a quarrelsome wife. How great it is, we could flip that around and say, to live in the the house with an encouraging, supportive wife. And David's whole household comes out here. God gives to David his household to support him in this time of betrayal. But that's not all. The second group that comes along are David's men. The king sets out with all the people following him, and they halted at a place some distance away, and all his men marched past him, along with all the Carthites and Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath, marched before the king. Um, this is a collection largely of foreigners, that is, Gentiles, that were likely his bodyguards, and they remain loyal to David. The Gentiles are loyal to the anointed king of Israel. And this is a huge encouragement when his son has just orchestrated what's effectively a military coup against him for these men to remain loyal. And amongst these faithful ones, one is singled out and his name is Ittai. And I know that many of you are soon to have sons. If you're looking for a unique name for your son, Ittai. Okay, think about that. Is Noah Joyner here? Ittai Joyner. I can just hear it now. Um, Because Ittai is an amazing guy. His story is incredible. 
The king says to Ittai the Gittite, you can use that kind of as a little middle name maybe, Ittai Gittite Joiner. Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom, David says. You're a foreigner, an exile from your homeland, and you only came yesterday. And today shall I make you wander about with us when I don't know where I'm going? Go back, take your countrymen, may kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will I, your servant, be. So this foreigner proves himself to be both a man of faith, he believes in the Lord, and a man of fierce unto death loyalty. To David, though he's only been in his service just since like yesterday. Goes on and David says to Ittai, go ahead, march on. And so Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed. And the king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the desert. Ittai brings great encouragement to David by his fierce loyalty. And for David to have all these men standing with him in the midst of a military coup has to be tremendously encouraging. And, um, you know, loyal um, warriors around a leader are huge. Huge. And I'm a benefactor of that here at North Wake. I've been the past here 16 years. And that's um, probably the lifespan of about five pastors, um, typically. But how much more amazing is it? And the reason that I'm probably still here is the fact that Rob Craig has been here 13 years as our evangelism pastor. Jeff Doyle has been here almost nine years. Daniel Creswell's already been here almost five years. I think he joined staff when he's like 12. Um, LAUGHTER You know, and all these guys get regular invitations to go candidate and pastor other places, other churches. But they are fiercely loyal. It just hasn't been that long ago. Somebody asked Rob Craig to go be their children's pastor. (laughs) After much prayer and fasting, Rob declined on that one. It's the same with our elders. You know, uh, Mark Lederbach, Sam Williams, these guys have been at North Wake seven years, most of that time serving as elders. Um, Stu Bowman is one of the founding fathers of Northwick. He was here before I got here. Um, and to have men who are ferociously loyal around you. This is God just sending. Essentially, he, sends, he says, look, your family's with you. Your warriors are with you. The people of God, these are believing people, are with you in this, David. And even though God is humbling David through great suffering, the betrayal of his son, he is making sure that that suffering is redemptive in David's life because he's surrounding him with the people of God. You don't want to go through suffering without being surrounded by the people of God. And God, this is God's grace to David, so that the suffering will have its desired effect, and it does. Um, in verse 24, 
fellow named Zadok was there too. He was a priest. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. So they're carrying the Ark of God along with David. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar and other priests offer sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. And then the king says to the priest, Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city where Absalom is. He says, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if God says, I am not pleased with you, David, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. This is a humble king before a mighty God. And David humbles himself by submitting fully to God's great purposes. Essentially, he says, whatever God does to me is good to me. I will submit to what God does to me above all other options, even if it is for my destruction as king. David would later write in Psalm 63, God, because your love is better than life itself, my lips will glorify you. David says, I'd rather die knowing the love of God than live outside of it. Whatever God desires is my desire. David is humbly submitted to his God. It it has echoes of Job who says, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And it echoes the words of Jesus who says in that garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet, yet not my will, but yours be done. See, it's not about David manipulating God to do what David wants. It's about David submitting to whatever God wants. So through his suffering and the loyal support of God's people, David is humbled now before the Lord. And I cannot help but wonder, would David have been here apart from his suffering? Would he have turned Godward in that suffering apart from the people of God around him? I seriously doubt it. Verse 27, the king says to Zadok the priest, aren't you a seer or a prophet? Go back to the city in peace with your son Ahimez and Jonathan, son of Abiathar. You and Abiathar, you two priests, Take your two sons with you. I'll wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. So David sent Zadok and Abiathar. They take the ark of God. They go back to Jerusalem. They stay there, essentially functioning as spies for David. And again, God sends him two priests who are willing to risk their lives and the lives of their sons to spy for David. Verse 31, David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Word reaches him now that his trusted counselors betrayed him. So David prays, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Remember, Ahithophel was like one who counseled the counsel of God to people. And David now prays. This is another sign that his suffering is having upon him the effect of humility. He's in submission to God and he's praying again. Matter of fact, there's a psalm that's recorded from when David was fleeing Absalom in Psalm 3. 
He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me. God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. David is submitting and praying. He's humbled before Almighty God once again. And you remember this whole mess that started with Bathsheba. The writer of Samuel pointed out to us it happened because of David's pride. But now, through his suffering, God has restored to him his humility and he safeguards it with his people, God's people. And the last one to come along is in these closing verses. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there. This is an old friend of David's. His robe is torn and dust on his head as a symbol of mourning that David's had to leave the city. And David says to him, if you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons are there with them. Send them to me with anything you hear. So David's friend, Hushai. So if you're having twins, Ittai and Hushai. Okay? These are the great men in this text. Arrive at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. And again, you've got an old friend coming to David in his time of greatest need and risking his life for this guy. I can't underestimate for you the importance of friendships in the body of Christ to strengthen you in your time of suffering. It safeguards your soul. I just heard, uh, got word by way of a mutual friend that the guy who mentored me when I was in seminary has had to step down from his pastorate just because of a dis- directional disagreement with the leadership in the church. And he's been there for, I don't know, seven, eight years probably. Um, so I, I found out about it and I'm going to give him a call just to encourage him because I know that to hear from an old friend who has confidence in you, who believes in you, means a lot to people. And so if you are in North Wake without friends here, you're vulnerable. You're living outside God's provision for you. You know, in our, our mission statement at North Lake, we say that we're trying to reach the lost so that they can be equipped to join us in the process of becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. That's somebody who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loves the body of Christ, and who loves those who don't know Christ yet. And we've expanded that on our mission statement, and each one of those relationships has been defined a little further. And one of them, the second one is about community. It's about friendship in the body of Christ. It says, with one another in community, we believe every member of the body is uniquely gifted by the Spirit to serve God, minister effectively, humbly to other members, and advance His kingdom. 
It's our intention to build a body of Christ-centered believers fully devoted to serving one another through relationships full of grace and truth that lead to Christ-honoring friendships. Please, don't rob the people around you of your friendship. They need your friendship to safeguard their souls. Because hardship can bring out the best in us. Suffering can, if we let it, make us better instead of worse. But that really hinges on the protection of God's people in friendship, in community. Amidst great suffering, accompanied by the people of God, David now recovers his humility. And this newly humbled king points forward to another humble king. It's fascinating. I I skipped a verse. It was verse 30. It says, David continued as he fled the city up the Mount of Olives. Of all the places for him to go, he goes up this place called the Mount of Olives. Weeping as he went, his head was covered and he was barefoot as symbols of mourning. And all the people with him were covered, covered their heads too, and they were weeping as they went up. See, David here is pointing us forward to Christ. This mention of this weeping king atop the Mount of Olives prefigures something that happens remarkably like this on numerous occasions in the last week of Jesus' life. Luke 19.41, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, likely from the Mount of Olives, Jesus wept for that city. And when he met with his friends in the Garden of Gethsemane, which, by the way, is on the Mount of Olives, it says Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled, And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground, and Jesus prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. So here again on the Mount of Olives with his closest friends around him, weeping, Jesus is in submission to the Father. Father, whatever you ask of me, do to me whatever seems good to you. So God is at work in David amidst his suffering. He's humbling him. And he's showing the way to Christ through this suffering servant of God. What is God doing in the midst of your suffering? I wonder, does he have you in a hard place to accomplish the very same things? To humble you before your God such that you would say, let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And so that others can see Christ in you by the way you suffer. Peter picks up on this and he says in 1 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament, To this, he's talking about suffering. To suffering you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his suffering steps. 
He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted him himself to him who judges justly. He submitted to God and trusted him. So this morning, if you're in a hard place, the question is, will you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? Will you submit yourself to God? Would you say this morning, let him do to me whatever seems good to him? And to give you a chance to make that statement in a tangible way, I'd like to ask the congregation to stand all together for our closing response of worship. And this morning, if you're in a hard place and God is pushing on you, maybe it's a hard relationship, maybe it's a hard place at work or no work, maybe it's hard financially, maybe it's a hard struggle against temptation, maybe it's physical suffering. If you're willing to say with David, let him do to me, let God do to me whatever seems good to him and humble yourself and pray. I'd like to invite you right now as we get ready to close our service, if you would all, all of you who are in that situation, if you'd come down here in the front so we can pray for you. That's all we're gonna do is just pray for you. So if you're in a hard place this morning and you're willing to say, I will trust and submit in God whatever he does to me, wherever this leads, Would you just make your way down right now? Great. Just come right down here and stand right in front, if you would. We're going to pray for you. To follow a crucified Messiah is to suffer. It's just part of it. But to suffer in the hands of a loving Father, that changes everything. It's the promise that the crucified Messiah would raise on the Thursday, on the third day. It's the promise that God will redeem your suffering, your hardship, whatever the shape of it, for good. And this morning, by standing here, you are saying, God, I trust you enough to say, whatever you do to me, I'm good with that. And so we, as a congregation, standing with you, want to pray for you because you don't want to suffer without the people of God around you. And our standing with you this morning is our commitment to stand with you in your suffering. So I'll lead, church, you pray for these who stand here before us, all right? Let's pray. God's suffering is not what we ask for. It's not what we signed up for, but it's part of this world until your son comes again. And so we wait and we persevere And we trust. And these who stand here before you in a hard place, God, are saying today with their palms open to you, God, whatever you have for me, I'm in. All the way. 
And God, they're asking for grace. Sufficient, amazing grace to follow the example of Christ and to cast themselves upon you who judges justly. God, strengthen them, bless them, give them peace and hope and even an inexplicable joy right where they are. That by the way they suffer, in suffering like their Savior, they would show the Savior. So Lord, we as a church commit to stand with these, to love them and to pray for them and encourage them and point them to you at every turn. God, may Satan have no access to them, defended by the prayers of your saints and the power of your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.